I can't imagine the amount of genital hair that was in that. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Yes, as always. Peter will not be here this week. He has a bunch of stuff he's got to do, and real life always comes first. But if you guys want to help out the show, we have a Patreon, and also you can go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight I want to talk about something that a lot of people either forget about or Hollywood wants you to forget about. Exploitation did it first. Anytime you have a, a new trend or a new barrier broken in Hollywood, exploitation did it first. Hollywood is always, by its very nature, afraid to go into that weird area. They're afraid to break the boundary. They're afraid to do this. Exploitation don't give a f- they will, by their very nature, exploit whatever. So there'll be something that comes along and it's a trend or uh, a phase or something that they can latch onto and they'll make their version of it. And a lot of times what comes out of that is a lot of really entertaining stuff. It may not be the most artsy. Uh, Artsy, exactly, but it is the most pure. It is distilled down to its basic elements, uh, whether that be exploitation or exploitation or osploitation or whatever, and it comes out and it is just, hey, this is what we wanted to make, this is what we decided to do, and it stands on its own. And a lot of times, uh, it ends up being highly entertaining. Let's look at black exploitation. The Hollywood system didn't want to touch black movies starring black casts made for black audiences. No way, man. We're not going to do this. So people like Larry Cohen and others were like, I'll do it. And then they started seeing all the money brought in by Sweet Sweetback and all that. And all of a sudden, Warner Brothers was like, all right, we need to start getting into this. They didn't want to make Okay, I guess you could call these ethnic movies. Exploitation, when you get to, like, Asian-centric movies. And I'm not talking Boris Karloff playing Charlie Chan. That's not Asian-centric. That's, well, borderline racist. I'm talking about actual Asian cast making movies for Asian audiences. Exploitation. Gay. Did Hollywood dabble in the gay stuff? Not at all. You had this underground movement of gay filmmakers that made movies for gay audiences. Those made a ton of money. All of a sudden, Hollywood embraces gay. Exploitation did it first. That's the general rule. I will uh, give credit to Warner Brothers with I had messed up when I made my my Superfly video because uh, I I goofed I misspoke and unfortunately I'm only one person so you know mistakes can make their way through when I said that uh, Warner Brothers had greenlit Gordon Parks's movie and I said that it was Shaft when in actuality it was The Learning Tree that was the movie that uh, he had he had written and directed and that was a lot of faith being put into him. 
him because that was even prior to um, Sweet Sweetback. So Sweet Sweetback did kick off the, uh, you know, holy crap. We can make money, you know, at, at African American, you know, or black movies aimed at black people. But the Warner Brothers did kind of step up with the learning tree, uh, with Gordon Parks. And cause I talked about that in my, uh, Ganjin Hess video where that kind of went into. So, but it wasn't, it really wasn't until, um, Sweet Sweetback that it kicked off the black exploitation genre where people were like, Oh my God, this is, uh, you know, we can make so much bank with these movies. But yeah, there are a lot of a lot of genres, a lot of things in general uh, that I mean, if you go and look at the history of the trends in movies, it's always like one movie will come out that is completely different from everything else and will be the forerunner. And then all of the knockoffs. Let's stick with race for a moment. We've got this whole diversity thing. You know, we need a black person in the movie. We need an Asian person, a gay person, a woman person. We need all this stuff in the movie. The exploitation movies, look at the old Roger Corman AIP movies. They had black casts mixed with white casts, mixed with Asian casts. In the exploitation era, you didn't care. You got the actors you could. So there's this whole diversity. Look how diverse we're being with our movies. And then all the movies from the 50s are going, <clears throat> yeah, I got another one too. And this, this really is kind of grinding my gears, so to speak. Now they're talking about how you need to, we need more women directors. And they always turn their nose up at B movies and stuff. Roger Corman constantly hired female directors to do his movies. And it's funny because a lot of the same people that are crowing about how you need female directors would then go back and look at Corman's works and the movies that Stephanie or Stephanie Rothman and those ones did. And they'd be like, well, we need them to direct but not those movies. With Roger Corman, though, it wasn't exactly altruistic sometimes. For instance, like on Humanoids from the Deep in 1980, he specifically hired a female director. So then that way, all of the graphic rape scenes, we can't be called misogynistic because we have a woman director. He didn't exactly hire her for her talent. He's like, if we have a director with a vagina, we're not misogynists. But the thing is, at the end of the day, he still was hiring female directors, whatever that came to. When they're talking about directors now, they're acting like they are so progressive because they hire them. And okay, fine. So he did it under the guise of not being able to be called uh, misogynistic. And I'm sure they probably were still called misogynistic uh, because a lot of the people that would review that stuff wouldn't look 10 seconds into it. I think that uh, still he I mean, I've I've listened to and spoken to many of the people who, who were hired by him and they they were saying he did a lot for for women in film he a lot more than he's really accredited for and whatever the reason being he still did that's true i'm just saying his motives were not the most altruistic out there well if you look at hollywood in general it's for them it's all about making money and i'm sure they've hired a lot of people for various reasons that weren't exactly you know it wasn't all rose colored you know they weren't hiring them for their talents they were maybe hiring them for the name or whatnot but then you also have stuff like the blockbuster formula you know everyone says jaws is the first blockbuster so we'll use 1975 as the benchmark here we have the blockbuster formula which is basically the exploitation formula but just with more money roger corman even said that he was pissed off when jaws came out because he said uh-oh the studios have finally caught on to our formula <laughs> 
but they have a lot more money to spend than we ever will. Corman was like, okay, we got to step the game up now. So, I mean, basically, if you think about a blockbuster, how, how many blockbusters are the artsy little story of a woman dealing with her problems and her alcoholism and her family? Those aren't blockbusters. Blockbusters are shit blowing up, monsters invading, and a whole bunch of action scenes. That's exploitation movie territory. It's exploitation territory with a $100 million budget. It's really, that's the only difference. Right. And if those movies had not made money on the exploitation low-budget circuit, Hollywood would have never really even taken a chance on Jaws. It's actually kind of surprising when you look at Jaws as the first blockbuster, because the novel is very exploitative. Um, the, the novel you could easily have seen be a Roger Corman movie. I'm actually kind of shocked Universal was able to put the relatively low budget that they put into Jaws. It did what it did, but it's still that, it thing- was still exploitation, though. Oh yeah, well the the thing with with Jaws, I will say to an extended degree, it it wasn't just the money that was put into it. It was the the money combined with the talent because you did have, you know, Spielberg really knocking it out of the park. And there were a lot of a lot of things that went wrong with the production that ended up benefiting the production, such as the shark not working and they and them not being able to show it until the end. That like it would have, I think it would have felt more like an exploitation film and possibly would have done not as well if they would have seen the shark as it was originally intended, where we would have seen it throughout the film instead of the big reveal at the end. I think that would have ended up feeling more like how something like Devilfish was, where we kept seeing that. The, the monster and it ended up so something like that ended up working to the film's favor but like with the blockbuster formula you have the ideal that these people are going to see this and i think in a way that that spoiled people now when people go and look at the exploitation movies that inspired the big budget i'm still going to call them exploitation movies look at how many especially critics nowadays even if they're older and they did grow up with these you point out oh look at the look at the set they look fake look at the optical effects oh that acting's not great well you're comparing two different things you're comparing a one million dollar roger corman battle beyond the stars to the new jj abrams star wars movie no they're not going to compare you're going but you're doing it anyway and i think that's unfair Absolutely. But they're always going to pull that nonsense. Uh, it cracks me up. Actually, I had somebody in, in my comments the other day that was complaining about the effects on John Carpenter's The Thing and saying how terrible and fake they look and how CGI is so much better and I'm just looking at things through rose-colored glasses. And uh, for for me personally, no. I, I hold like the thing up as one of the pinnacles of practical effects. And then I look at something like, say, Transformers and not debating the quality of the film. It just it looks like a big pile of fake it's like whether a video or not that's game, literally. Yeah, it looks like a, a a bad video game. But maybe it's because my mind knows that they're they're not there. But there is something about the practicals where you're looking at something that exists. You're looking at something that was created. You're looking, you know, whether that be a puppet or uh, some kind of animatronic or a practical blood of squib going off. But when you're watching 
CGI filled film, you're seeing like, you know, the backdrops are all green screen, the uh, robots and everything, all the other things in the movie. They're just green screen They're They don't exist. And sometimes they do legitimately look good. Not that tangibility. There's not that reach out and touch feeling to it. It does. It still just isn't quite there yet. Well, but you also have Exploitation did it first with, look at two of, in the broad scheme, I know the ratings for Walking Dead are down, but in the broad scheme, two of the biggest television shows of all time, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead. Exploitation, whether it's on TV or in movies, laid the groundwork for those to become that. Game of Thrones would have never been greenlit if the movies, the exploitation films, had not laid the groundwork. If Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, all the Romero films had not laid the groundwork for zombie genres that are about characters, Walking Dead would have never hit. Look at those two shows. They would not exist without the exploitation market. Dude, Game of Thrones, if you look at it at its bare bones, it is every exploitation. I mean, it is the, the, the sword and sorcery. It is rape, incest, murder, beheadings, slavery. Every single thing that has ever been in an exploitation film is all in this TV show. And because it's adapted from this popular book series and it's got HBO money behind it, it's the greatest thing that's ever existed. I, you could go and compare it to Deathstalker film. Deathstalker's that, actually somewhat tamer, really. Yeah, and, Death, he, and he's a rapist. Our hero's a rapist in the movie. That's more tame than an average Game of Thrones episode. It certainly is. Because in, I mean, in the first Deathstalker, he doesn't, you know, it is implied that he's going to, but he doesn't. But that lays it where you're like, okay, our hero is a rapist. But in Game of Thrones, there is constantly rape and, and incest and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's funny to me that something like that was able to achieve so much mainstream success. And the same people, again, who watch that religiously and, uh, crow about how amazing it is absolutely turn up their nose at something like Deathstalker or any of the other, you know, exploitation films that would kind of fit into that mold. I actually found, you know, maybe I'm comparing two unlike things here, but okay, Game of Thrones is full of rape and gore. So I, I saw a reviewer who just lambasted humanoids from the deep for how vile the rape scenes are, how disgusting the gore scenes are. Their favorite show is Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's like, uh, are we hypocritical much? Uh, no, no self-awareness. When Roger Corman does it, it's exploitation. When George R.R. R. Martin does it, it's art. Yeah. That even goes to the same thing with, like, remember when Jello Biafra was on trial in the 80s for obscenity? The prosecutor outright said, because he, he mentioned one of his favorite artists was Patti Smith, who also has a whole lot of controversial works. He said, in court, if Patti Smith had the same lyrics on her album, it would be art. Yeah, well, that's what it boils down to. It is, it's kind of the... And I like Patti Smith, so don't think I'm bitching about her. I think she's a fantastic artist, too. But I'm talking about the the hypocrisy of that. There, there was the quote, porn, and it was like, well, I want to ban pornography. It was like, well, okay, well, you're also going to ban, like, romance novels and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, no, that's the porn that I like. We'll talk about porn in a little bit. The other thing is... What is one of the most popular genres of, especially comedies right now? Drug movies, pot movies. Did the studio start making pot movies? 
No, they didn't. Uh, let's leave propaganda out. Reefer Madness, that kind of stuff. That That's not actual pot movies. That's not drug movies for reality. It was Roger Corman again. It was people like AIP again. Exploitation made the first drug movies. They made millions. And then the studios went, hey, maybe this Cheech and Chong thing, maybe we could make some money with that. Yeah, the uh, the drug movies, it was always – that was one of those things that was like an underlying element of a lot of the cheerleader movies where it's like they would they, – oh, well, we're going to get promiscuous and let's smoke some pot and then woo and off fly the clothes and everything. You know, it was it was always a, like a fun thing. And then they went on to make them focusing on either the fun side of drugs where, you know, they'd smoke pot and have a lot of fun and have sex and, you know, outsmart the bad guy. There were the people – People that interrupt a, a drug deal gone wrong, and then they're being chased by the evil cocaine smugglers or what have you. So uh, that was the two ends of, of that spectrum. But yeah, there were plenty of the the drug movies. Then later got adapted. Uh, you know, Hollywood took over and made their variations and made uh, you know the half baked and that kind of thing. Well, but then there's the other thing about messages. Now, Hollywood, by definition, due to the larger budgets, they are constantly terrified of pissing people off, of making people angry about making something controversial. They try and be as middle of the road as they can with a Hollywood movie, because there's so much more money on the line. Exploitation films can actually get out a message. Do you think, and I'm sorry to keep going to Roger Corman, but do you think Roger Corman's The Intruder could have ever been made at a studio? Absolutely not. It would be, it would be really neutered. And that is a powerful movie about race and race relations and i know people make fun of william shatner and his acting he is all goddamn in on that role isn't he oh yeah he's delivering funny how some actors will do like really over the top and it's like oh they're brilliant and the other actors will do it and it's just they're chewing the scenery he's somewhere in the middle he's delivering a, a great performance but he's also like really like he's just chewing every scene he's in but it's great well, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about in The Intruder. His character is without a doubt the villain of the piece. He's a vile, racist, borderline rapist piece of shit. And Shatner makes this motherfucker likable to you. And that is a hard thing to do. Oh, absolutely. It happens every now and then where there's a movie where this is the villain and yet you like the villain. Well, I don't think you're supposed to like him. I think you're supposed to understand why he is so pervasive and persuasive because he just has charisma. Well, as you know, by talking to him, he's he's a charismatic dude. People will crap. So nice. He, he was so nice on the phone too when I when I interviewed him. People will crap on him, you know, all day and night. There's a reason why the guy has is still force of nature. He's still around. The guy is very likable. He went through. You know, a, a period where, you know, he had some rough times. Overall, the guy is a charismatic guy. I have no memory. You were one of the many people I know that have interacted with him, that have interviewed and have had nothing but nice things to say about him, about how open he was about whatever the topic you were discussing and how he's just genuinely a very cool guy. He, he is. I mean, I've heard bad stories, too, but my experience with Shatner was he was a very nice, open guy. Along that same line, look at how many 
exploitation movies have a message to them. And yes, Hollywood movies do that now too, but they never do before the exploitation movie breaks that ground. Hollywood is just terrified of doing anything until an exploitation movie does it first. Maybe not even a, even a movie. Let, let's go to TV for just a moment. Let's go all the way back to 1990. Do you think The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, all of these A-list prestige format shows would even be there? If ABC had not taken a chance and said, what's this David Lynch Twin Peaks thing going to be like? I know it's ABC. Twin Peaks was absolutely art exploitation, though. He just fooled ABC into paying for it. Oh, yeah, he duped them into doing that. I think The Sopranos would have happened eventually anyway, simply because of how, like, mafia stuff has always just... Uh, mafia stuff has just always been popular. And I think that the idea of a long-running mafia series done by HBO, I think that really would have happened either way. But I do see what you're saying with, uh, with you know, them taking a chance on Twin Peaks. Did, did ABC also do Wild Palms? ABC also did Wild Palms. The ABC did Max Headroom. They did China Beach. They did Moonlighting. See, in the 80s, in the later 80s, into the early 90s, ABC was fourth. The brand new Fox network was kicking the crap out of them. They they were green lighting anything because they were desperate. If ABC was in the number one or number two spot, they would have never greenlit this stuff. That's the way TV works. You only take a chance when there's no more options. I don't remember what studio it was. If it was NBC, ABC, or, or CBS, but one of them basically like blew off Fox. Like they're never going to be anything. And then when Fox knocked them out of their spot, he ended up being relegated to like uh, a uh, studio I, I th- in I Alaska. Think, I think that was CBS. Was that I CBS? think that was CBS. <laughs> I want to say CBS, but don't do not quote me on that. Yeah, he ended up being like removed and sent to oversee a, a channel in Alaska. <laughs> well. Okay, let's stick with TV for a moment. When the Fox network came on, yes, they lost a billion dollars that first year. They were the equivalent of the Roger Corman to the big three at that time. And what did they put on that first year? Married with Children and Werewolf and 21 Jump Street. And by the second year they were on The Simpsons. Those would have never been greenlit on one of the big four. It's the same ideal we're talking about. Yes, when we say Fox now, that doesn't sound like an independent or an exploitation. You remember those early years of Fox. They were all exploitation, weren't they? They were flying by the seat of their pants. They were just doing, they were doing the shows weren't being done at other networks. That was really their draw. They were breaking out uh, the adventures of Beans Baxter and 21 Jump Street and the Tracy Ullman show. They were doing these shows that you wouldn't ever find on Married the with networks. Children. Mar- okay, Married with Children could have never aired on one of the big three. No, it constantly, they were constant jokes about sex, about like their, orgasms. their daughter. Uh, how orgasms. How many coming jokes were there in that first season? Oh my god. The, I mean, but Kelly Bundy is a moron and a whore. Bud constantly is jerking off. Like, it's all of these things that never would have flown on a major network. And now yeah, it's so like, I, a, and now it's a classic. I mean, it's, it's an amazing show. It's still, with the exception of the, of the one season where they had seven, where they even admitted that they messed up. It still is a brilliant show. And going back and watching it, it's still goddamn funny. 
Yeah, but later on it lost the edge because that, just like anything, that became the norm. It didn't have that edge. When you watch that first season in the context of 1987 TV and you look at everything else that was on in the big three, that was something that couldn't believe. That was the equivalent of a Roger Corman movie. It totally And was. that just didn't happen then. No. And thankfully, it, it really worked in favor of Fox because they quickly blew up and became a, a force to be reckoned with and, and started taking a lot of the uh, thunder away from the other shows and, or a lot from the other networks. They started, another network started trying to adapt to start trying to make shows that they were like, oh, wait, people aren't going to just watch whatever garbage we put out, we now have to maybe look at stuff and try some different things. And I think that's one of the beauties of exploitation is that for better or worse, they were trying different things. They were trying things that weren't being done elsewhere. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but at least they tried. Now let's talk about porn because porn, by its very definition, is exploitation. In fact, you could say it's complete exploitation. In a way, it's pure exploitation. A lot of people dismiss porn as just that thing you jerk off to and then you go about your day. But porn is the reason we have everything we have. For instance, do you know what the first thing ever made on a movie camera was in 18? 1999, the movie, it's a French film, Le Crochet de la Marie, or Bedtime for the Bride, or alternately known as The Bridegroom's Dilemma. The very first thing we did when we made this moving pictures thing was filmed people f***ing. I can't imagine the amount of genital hair that was in that. <laughs> well, you know. French and 1800s and porn. Oh, oh, jeez. This is 11 years before Einstein's Frankenstein, which which is considered the, quote, first real movie ever made. There is always that thing where whenever a new invention comes along, it's always a rush to see, well, how can we f*** this thing you know when with with film it, it was like i want naked people on this yeah, I, i'm sure that i'm sure that when the polaroid was invented the first thing somebody did was take a picture of his wife naked right or or take a picture of, you know it was like the first dick pic took a picture of his dick and like hey look at this ah i didn't want to see well, that okay vcrs we would not have the home video revolution if not for porn when the vcr came out do you think people were spending their money buying tapes? Remember, you, there was no rental stores yet at this point. Do you think people were buying tapes of Patton or MASH or The Sound of Music, which were three of the only films available at the time? Or were they buying Debbie Does Dallas, The Devil and Miss Jones, or Deep Throat? Yes, they were buying porn. Hey, wait, we can watch this at home? Christian author Luke Gilkerson has this great quote. Quote, the history of the VCR is directly linked to the history of pornography. In 1978, when fewer than 1% of American homes had VCRs, over 75% of VHS tapes sold were of a pornographic nature, unquote. 1% of the country has VCRs, over 75% of tape sales are porn. It was the, it was the Wild West. People were buying a VCR to jerk off at home. Otherwise, to see a porno movie, you had to go to a theater. And, a, and, and then, you know, just like Lincoln, you risked being shot in the back of the head. Uh, you went there, didn't you? Yes, I did. The, the video war. Beta versus VHS. 
there are other elements involved, but one of the main things is VHS was lower quality than Betamax. Now, Betamax did have another detriment, which is tape's length. You could only get, at that point, one hour onto a, a tape. So, like, a, a normal 90-minute movie would be a two-tape set on a Betamax. You could get it all on VHS, but you lost quality. Beta's thing was quality. Beta also said, because they were exclusively made by Sony at that point, no porn. They would not allow porn. VHS said, porn? We'll have porn. All of a sudden, when Beta said, we will not allow porn on our format, VHS sales went up to the next year. People wanted their porn. That's one of the reasons why I was really surprised when Blu-ray won over HD DVD, because when they announced that Blu-ray would not allow porn, but HD DVD Again, Sony. was... Again, yeah. But it was being because uh, Sony, I believe, m- my memory's a little rusty on this, but I think they paid off the day before they announced Samsung or whatever was going to, or was a bunch of studios were going to go all in with HD DVD. Sony paid off Warner Brothers and they were going to exclusively put their movies on Blu-ray. And then that's when the tide shifted, when it was like, okay, everybody's going to go Blu-ray because they got this major studio behind them. But I was kind of surprised because when I heard that i'm like oh it's history repeating itself and yeah this is the betamax debacle all over again yeah because sony was tired of losing how many format wars had sony lost over the years and it was all all because we don't want porn on our format well guess what people want porn on your format yeah and it doesn't it doesn't say anything about the format it's it's like it, like just because you're I, mean, I guess they're they're putting it out there that, you know, you're allowing allowing it to be so that way you're condoning it. I think that it's simply this is a format. This is a legal property. This is something that is is done that there's no reason that they shouldn't allow it on there. Well, but then DVDs were the same thing when they came in. In the first year, DVD was commercially available. I know they technically existed before 1997, but 1997 was the first year DVDs were commercially available. 85% of all DVDs were of a pornographic nature. Yes, you could buy The Exorcist. Yes, you could buy Seven. That's not what most people were buying on DVD. They eventually, uh, it, it has gotten to the point now where I think because of the internet, we're probably more people are buying movies and stuff than buying porn because most people are I, just... I will get to the internet in a moment the home camcorder you know the whole thing of making your own movie and having a, a, a film that you're you know a video that you can make in your house do you see where i'm going why that became popular it wasn't to film little timmy getting his first visit from the tooth fairy it was to film timmy's parents having sex in their bedroom for better or worse <laughs> The point is the camcorder became the household item because of porn. People wanted porn like that. Adult Video News says, and the reason I'm I'm taking these older years for this is, you know, these are the early days of the Internet I'm talking about, the Internet as we know it. Adult Video News reported that from 2001 to 2007, so we'll call that the infancy of the Internet, Internet porn went from being a $1 billion a year industry to a $17 billion a year industry in six years. It went from subscriptions and online sales. Remember, this is before Pornhub and X-Hamster, you know, had to pay for your porn on the Internet and all this. $2.8 billion every day was being spent on porn. Every second in this time, $3,075.64 on average was being spent on pornography every second. Wow. 
That's the reason we have faster internet speeds to get porn. People couldn't get porn fast enough. Guess what the first industry that put their movies online? Now, again, we're, this isn't streaming as we know it. We're talking maybe streaming in a, a real player or QuickTime or something. It wasn't Fox. It wasn't Warner Brothers. It wasn't putting up the X-Men trailer. It was porn. The reason we got better video players and faster internet was porn. Do you know why we got bigger screens on our phones? Porn. Not for, pl- not for <laughs> playing Plants vs. Zombies, so you could watch porn on your phone. Everything we have technologically right now in the entertainment industry is due to porn. Everything. Damon Brown, the author of the book Porn and Pog, has this great quote. Quote, it seems so obvious. If we invent a machine, the first thing we're going to do after making a profit is use it to watch porn. When the projector was invented roughly a century ago, the first movies were not damsels in distress tied to train tracks or Charlie Chaplin-style slapsticks. They were stilted porn shorts called stag reels. VHS became the dominant standard for VCRs, largely because Sony wouldn't allow pornographers to use Betamax. The movie industry followed porn's lead. DVDs, the internet, cell phones, you name it. Pornography planted its big flag there first, or at least shortly thereafter. Unquote. Paul Fishman says, quote, porn doesn't have a demographic. It's the only format that goes across all demographics, unquote. It's it's true. And like now all I all I hear in my head is uh, the Internet is for porn from uh, Avenue Q. Because it kind of is. It kind of is. It's uh, you know, it's it really is. It's, you know, but but th- th- my point is porn being the ultimate and purest form of exploitation. Exploitation did it first. Exploitation also is the only industry where anybody can, you know, go back to our PM Entertainment episode. Hey, you want to direct a movie? Sure, I'll direct a movie. Try doing that at Warner Brothers. Just being some guy who maybe, you know, you were the caterer and you talked to the director and you had some good ideas and they're like, you want to direct the next one? Okay. Exploitation gave people their start. People who now are super famous. We always go to Roger Corman. He started the career of just about every Oscar winner from the 1970s through the 1990s. Now, remember Bob Costas used to have a show called Later, where mm-hmm. he would have these quiet sit-down interviews with people? Well, he had Roger Corman on twice. And I can't remember exactly what year it was, but he pointed out that every single one of the people for that year that was up for Best Director started with Roger Corman. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize just how many actors, directors, producers, and all of that got their start in exploitation, be it with Roger Corman or with one of the other, uh, you know, stables. Band started a lot, too. Yeah, band started a lot, too. Exactly. What what other industry can you just do this? Like the comic book industry. It used to be, look at how many of the what we consider the best writers and artists of the 70s and 80s got their jobs just by walking into, like, Marvel Comics or DC Comics office and said, can I talk to the editor? I got some ideas. Try doing that today. There's so many walls built up around, even even famous directors are like, hey, I'd like to make a comic book. And they're like, well, you don't have the chops for this. They, uh, it's, it's so, like, I understand it's a business. They do need to learn how to take risks. They do, and, and I'm not talking dumb risks. I'm talking like reasonable risks. Here, I got an, I got a crazy idea. Instead of making one a hundred million dollar movie and throwing, you know, making that be your tent pole and just that is going to be the staple. Why don't you make like five twenty million dollar films there? You have a greater chance of one of those being like a breakout hit and maybe you won't make a billion dollars, 
but you'll make a lot of money. And also at $20 million, if, you know, one of them ends up failing, you're not losing as much. It just seems to me like you've got so many studios that are always on the brink of disaster because they make like this giant film and that is the make or break of the studio and it ends up flopping and then they panic and they're, you know, they, they end up having to, to go under because of it or they're almost going under, but thankfully they're saved because of some other property. Usually something that they didn't spend as much money on ends up end up saving their bacon. And I think that that really needs to be a focus of a lot of studios. They should as budgets continue to spiral out of control maybe they should reel it back in and start focusing on i'm not saying get rid of blockbusters altogether i'm saying don't have so many blockbusters be the focus of what your business is but also let's go back to the burgeoning vhs market leaving porn aside we've long talked about how they couldn't keep up with demand once vcr became affordable and you had all these mom and pop video stores popping up you didn't have blockbuster video yet you didn't have video watch or anything like that yet what was what were people renting again leaving porn aside were they renting the fox library that was being put out of a-list films with george c scott and sigourney weaver in them no they were renting trauma films they were renting action movies the direct-to-video market was all exploitation. Then the studio started to go, you know what? We can start making movies for this. Again, the exploitation guys did it first. Absolutely. Because that was the, I mean, that was how the rise of the direct-to-video market blew up because the studios couldn't produce enough they so you had people like uh charles band and what and uh corman that were just filling in the blanks they were like okay well you guys can't make it well we will and they just were flooding the market with content and some of it not good but a lot of it was really entertaining i mean there's a reason why we have uh, these older films that are getting restored and put on blu-ray now because people want to watch them people still want to watch them people want to watch them back in the day and they want to watch them again now that was a really important movement and again it showed hollywood the error of their ways and then they came along started making direct to move direct to video movies and then started putting their movies on video faster but then again push off oh well those other direct-to-video movies and that exploitation, that's all garbage. But ours is the real stuff that you want to watch. But that said, look at the video store market, which would by definition be the direct-to-video market. Look at that for a moment and ask yourself, do you remember a whole lot of direct-to-video family dramas? Do you remember a lot of soul-searching movies made direct-to-video? Or do you remember a lot of monster movies and sci-fi movies and action movies? Lots of monster movies, sci-fi, action, you, you know, uh, cheerleader, nude movies, all that fun stuff. I, I mean, okay, yes, it's certain, like, Christian groups would have, like, Buttercream Gang movies put out direct-to-video, but those weren't huge. You're maybe not old enough to remember this, but I think you, you are. When, when you'd go to the video store, especially the mom and pop video store, like, eight, 1989, you'd go there on a Friday night. There was barely anything left, wasn't there? Oh, yeah. 
They, they cleaned house. Like we, I had a, I wrote about this in a, the forward to a book a couple years back, but uh, about we used to, me and my friends would go to uh, the video store, uh, usually on like uh, Tuesday nights and would just uh, rent, t- you know, a crap ton of movies to sit up and watch. And that was usually a good night to get movies. But yeah, if you went on a weekend, everything that was worthwhile uh, that you'd want to watch on a weekend was gone. And the only stuff that wasn't, that was still there was the dramas. Cause no one wants to watch, watch that on a weekend. Nobody wants to watch the dramas on a weekend. Dramas are for the weeknights. But it, it's, it's the same thing that we're talking about here. Exploitation does it first. Then the Holly, then the Hollywood system comes in and they say, we can put more money behind this, more promotion behind it. In a way, they end up sanitizing it. And that's what Hollywood always does. You look at just about, I mean, you do get flukes now and then, but you look at just about any trend or subgenre currently out in, I'm talking theatrical release, cause that's what I'll call Hollywood, in theatrical release. Almost everything is a copy or an aping of something exploitation did a year or two earlier. Almost without missing a beat. They've, they've taken so many ideas and then will crow about how they're the, the originators. And it's like, no, you're not. You're at your, you are succeeding on the backs of others and acting like you're the ones that deserve all the credit. Let's go back to 1999. Now, The Blair Witch Project is not the first found footage movie, but it's the one that kicked off the whole subgenre we know today. Do you think any studio would have taken a chance on that movie? Do you think Warner Brothers, Paramount, Fox, Disney, whatever, do you think a single one of them would have ever given them the, what was it, a $20,000, something like that, budget? 30, 30, 30, $30,000. The $30,000 budget to make that movie? Yet all of them, after Blair Witch proved this can work. We're like, we need one of these and we need it now. They made the Blair Witch Project and premiered it at the film festivals. And and that's when it really took hold, when it scared the crap out of people. And it's just set off this wave of people talking about it, about how you need to see this. This was this wasn't a, hey, that was a good movie. You you have to go see it. No, this was you need to see this movie. And that made the studios stand up and take notice. And uh, they, you know, got into a bidding war over it. And consequently, that did it kicked off uh the first wave of uh found footage films now like you said i mean it, it's arguable about which was genuinely the first found footage film but that was as i said in my one video that was the one really brought found footage to the mainstream that was the one that made everybody sit up and take notice and that was the one where it inspired a bunch of knockoffs and then the next one after that was paranormal activity where that kicked off the next wave of all right we need to make a ton of found footage films and it doesn't matter if they're good or not we'll make them cheap we'll crank them out there and people will watch them they're still going with that today but not as much they did kind of back off a little bit but uh every now and then i'm like oh this looks like a good oh it's a found footage movie and it ends up being really bad when it comes to found footage like you said it's arguable a lot of people will say cannibal holocaust and i used to but then when orson welles other side of the wind came out and that entire movie is found footage they're like well that was made in 72 so orson welles invented found footage technically we just didn't know it at the time because the movie didn't get released until 2018. The studios are always about chasing trends, and the exploitation market is what tends to make those trends. Like in the case of something like with like with Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, that market 
was made by the exploitation movies, by the exploitation TV shows. I don't think Game of Thrones could exist without Hercules' The Legendary Journeys or Xena. I don't think without without things like that, HBO would have said, maybe this fantasy thing, but we make it as Roger Corman as possible. This can work. Do you remember... Was Baywatch, Baywatch was originally NBC. Baywatch was NBC for one season, then they canceled it, then it and went then it got canceled first run syndication, and then it blew the hell up. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying is that when they put out Baywatch, if you watch, if you, you go and watch the NBC season, it's a very by the numbers, it barely feels like Baywatch. Kind of. Yeah, and then you watch Baywatch when it got into, um, syndication, and it's, it's exploitation. It's all That's where all just the slow the motion shots. and everything came in. And but that was when it took off, so it was kind of funny because it was like they were like, All right, we're gonna do this, but they didn't really go all in on it, and then it flopped and they cancelled it, so it got picked up and it ended up being uh the biggest show in history for quite a while. Like that was the number one TV show of all time for quite a while. And that was only beat by two other exploitation TV shows. Renegade in its third season dethroned Baywatch as the most popular show in the world. And then the little known Stephen Williams series LA Heat then beat Renegade the next year. And then Baywatch took the throne again back. But for two years, Baywatch lost it to Renegade and LA Heat, both pure exploitation for god's sake la heat was made by pm entertainment cecil i know i mean come on i mean pm entertainment they are another one of the unsung heroes of exploitation their action movies are just phenomenal i was talking with somebody about it the other day about how they just stumbled onto t-force i'm like oh you're just finding out a pm entertainment now oh settle in man there's some goodness to be had But then okay to, to wrap this up then you had all of these pm entertainment type studios you had new line cinema back when they were an independent you had miramax back when they were an independent they were putting out exploitation movies go back to the early 1990s when kevin smith and quentin tarantino and steven soderbergh were starting to come up they could have never made those movies at studios. The big studios gobbled up all of these independent places that neutered them because now let leave the Weinsteins part out. Does Miramax have any name recognition anymore for quality? No. But back in the 90s, they did. New Line Cinema, especially in our circle, they were putting out all of those great horror sequels and weird franchises and goofy sci-fi movies. And then they got bought. They got bought by, I think it was Warner Brothers. Does New Line Cinema actually matter anymore? No. Once they stop being independent, they get castrated. That's the depressing thing. That's what happens with a lot of things goes into even video games where you have a studio that is making really awesome games and then they announce that they've been bought by, let's say, EA. It's like, oh, this is great. No, it's not because then they homogenize the content. They make it samey and then most of the time they'll uh, shut the studio down or they'll take whatever properties and we'll just start pumping out remakes and you just crap. And it's, it's just using the name as like a husk. 
Because, I mean, I'm sure you remember when you were in the video rental, you know, the VHS era, that when you saw that New Line logo or the Miramax logo, it brought you the same elation as when you saw that fucking Canon logo at the beginning of a movie. Oh, there are certain logos that I would get pumped for. Uh, you'd see Full Moon, you see Canon, uh, you see... New Horizon uh, or New, New Con- Horizon. Or New Concord, which he changed it to later, but same company. Yeah, PM Entertainment, you just get pumped. And now a lot of, like... You know, you see Fox or you see Paramount and it's cool. I don't, even TriStar, I would say I would get, I used to get excited for TriStar, but now it's just, all right, it's another movie from, from this company. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't have the same to it anymore. And I know people might say, you know, you're just living in the past, shut the fuck up and fine. That's fair. I still want to say exploitation did it first. Everything you love in these big budget movies with all of your CGI, exploitation did it first. I agree. I really have nothing else to add. I just think that, uh, you, you, you know, you're spot on with this one. So on that note, where can people find Cecil Exploitation Did It First Thing? You can see me talking about lots of exploitation films over at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Remember, we have the Patreon. Remember, you can go to Adam and Eve. And there are t-shirts and stuff at 1201beyond.com. You should probably buy some of those because they're really cool looking and money and money. So on that note, guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Exploitation did it first. Hunt's not dead, it just deserves to die When it becomes another stale cartoon a closed-minded, self-centered social club Ideas don't matter, it's who you know If the music's gone
Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.